invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to our text as it's found in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Acts 6, beginning with verse 1. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose... Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. In the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, there is to be unity. Unity in the truth. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. In other words, that ye speak the same thing concerning the truth, and that ye have the same mind and the same judgment in the truth of Jesus Christ that's revealed in Scripture. And so there is to be a unity in the truth, but also a unity in love. As the Lord Jesus says in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. This is again agape, the Greek word agape. It is the idea of laying down your life for one in order to do that which is good for them being willing to sacrifice yourself for the good of others however there's also a diversity to be in the church not only a unity to be in the church but a diversity to be in the church diversity in gifts Diversity and abilities to serve our Savior. 
and to serve one another. For example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And God has gifted all of you who are believers in Jesus Christ, has given you abilities and gifts to serve the church of Jesus Christ. You may have learned those gifts uh, from uh, your parents or your father, or you may have those gifts uh, by way of just a, a, a natural uh, gift. Uh, but God wants you to have uh, use of those gifts by way of using them spiritually to, to edify and to build up the church of Jesus Christ, whatever those gifts may be. And among the various gifts that Jesus gives to his church is a diversity of church officers. Diversity of church officers, namely pastors, teachers, elders, and deacons. Church officers are called to be Christ's voice, Christ's eyes, Christ's ears, Christ's hands, and Christ's feet. In loving, in teaching, in leading, in serving, and in caring for the flock of Jesus Christ. Church officers are called by Jesus to promote the peace, the purity, and the unity of Christ's church. In Ephesians 4.13, Apostle Paul, speaking of these gifts that the Lord gives to the church, Jesus is the giver of these gifts, and in particular, uh, in particular the, uh, the offices that he has given to the church to edify and build up the church. But notice the end. Notice the goal of these offices in Ephesians 4.13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, that is a complete man, a mature man, unto the measure of, that, of the stature of the fullness of Christ. As we consider our text, what were the needs within the church at that time that led the apostles to call for caregivers of the church, deacons, to come alongside the apostles at that time to help in serving Christ and in serving his sheep? Well, let's consider the circumstances that gave rise to the special caregivers to the needy and to the afflicted in Christ's church. We'll be considering the following main points from our text. Number one, after growth comes conflict within the church in Acts 6.1. Number two, deacons are appointed to assist the apostles in caring for the flock in Acts 6, verses 2 through 4. And the third main point, qualified men are called to serve as deacons in Acts 6, verses 5 through 7. So our first main point, 
After growth comes conflict within the church. Look with me at verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1 of Acts. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So as the church in Jerusalem was going through this huge growth spurt, now likely numbering in the tens of thousands of Christians and of believers there in Jerusalem, Satan used a strategy that is often so successful to slow down the growth of the church. Conflict among the members. Divide and conquer was the strategy. Bring about conflict. Bring about uh, murmuring against one another. And this was the tool that the enemy was seeking to use to stop this amazing growth within the church of Jesus Christ at that time. What was the nature of the conflict in the church there in Jerusalem? Well, we read that there was a complaint among the Grecian Jews. Grecian Jews were those from the dispersion, from uh, Gentile nations that were now living in Jerusalem. So there was a complaint among the Grecian Jews that their widows were not being treated fairly in daily administration of uh, food. Necessary food, clothing, shelter being cared for. That seems to be what the complaint was with regard to the Grecian uh, Jews. And these were, again, not just Jews, but they were Grecian Jewish Christians that we're talking about here within the church. Within the church of Jerusalem at this very early stage of its development were both Grecian Jews and Hebrew Jews. Grecian Jews were those, as I said, that were born and raised in Greek-speaking nations where they had been led into captivity at the time of the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities. The Grecian Jews likely had taken up residence in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. You remember the day of Pentecost, the city was filled with people, Jewish people, who were, had come to celebrate that feast. And it was at that time that the Holy Spirit came in such a marvelous way upon uh, the apostles uh, who began to speak in the languages uh, of, the, uh, of all the people that had gathered there in Jerusalem. And uh, as a result of, the, of this miraculous act, speaking in these languages, they were languages known to the people. Each man heard what was being said in his own tongue, if we read. And, uh, and it lists all the different languages that were being given at that time. Uh, these, this was not gibberish. This, these were known languages at that time. And so here we see that uh, Peter afterwards preached this sermon 
and 3,000 were converted. And then short time afterward, there was a miracle performed in Acts uh, chapter uh, 4 and 5, and, and there, there were added 5,000 uh, more. And so we see that it's growing, and th this, to a large extent, would be people, or to, at least to some extent, a significant amount of people coming from uh, uh, the dispersion who had come to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and who had become Christians and had remained. Rather, They intended it to probably be a temporary visit, but when all that happened uh, on the day of Pentecost and subsequently by way of the preaching, the miracles performed by the apostles, it appears they probably take, took up a permanent residence there in Jerusalem. And it's these Grecian Jewish Christians that are now murmuring about their widows not being treated fairly. Uh, and so that seems to be what we have here in view. Whereas the, uh, the Hebrew Christians, or the Hebrew Jew, Jewish Christians, these were those who were born and raised in Judea and in Galilee. They predominantly used the original Hebrew text of the Old Testament in their synagogues, whereas uh, the Grecian Jewish Christians used the Greek Septuagint um, uh, for their worship in their synagogues. That was the text of scripture that they used. It's interesting that the apostles here did not admonish or correct the Grecian Jews in bringing their complaint as if there was no merit at all to their concern. To the contrary, the apostles appoint church officers, uh, deacons, to address this issue as if there was some legitimacy uh, to their complaint. Though the Grecian Jews may have had a legitimate complaint, the word used here for murmuring, when it speaks of them, a murmuring going about amongst the Grecian Jewish Christians, this word implies that their complaint was not handled in an orderly way, but hidden, hidden away in gossip and in whispers behind the scene, which was stirring up conflict and trouble within the church. The same word that's used here for murmuring in, in Acts 6.1 is also used by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2.14 when he says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. So this was not a, a righteous murmuring. The content, their complaint, the basis of their complaint may have been uh, righteous. But again, the way that they handled their complaint because it was murmuring was not righteous. It brought dissension. It brought conflict. You see, dear ones, conflicts arise either through not speaking the truth or conflicts arise through not speaking the truth in love 
or in not speaking the truth in love, in other words, neither the truth is spoken nor is it spoken in love. Either the principle of truth is in error or the practice is in error or both are in error. The Grecian Jewish Christians may have spoken the truth about their widows not being treated as the same the same as the Hebrew Jewish Christians and their widows but they did not speak the truth apparently in love they murmured they complained about rather than complaining to the eldership to the apostles to those in leadership, they murmured, and it brought dissension and conflict, as it always will. When we whisper, when we gossip, when we murmur about others, it will stir up inevitably dissension and conflict. But when we take our complaints either to the person or to those in leadership, uh, who are dealing with, with something that needs to be dealt with, then again, there, there is a proper way to be able to handle complaints. And the Psalms uh, are filled with complaints on the part of David uh, and uh, the other composers of those Psalms, inspired Psalms. But they're complaints to God. And so we can complain to God but we ought never to complain against God or about God or against one another or about one another. That's not a proper way. That's not an orderly. That's not a peaceful way to handle complaints. We need to crucify that murmuring while it's yet in our hearts before it reaches our lips. Because once it reaches our lips, it's like a cancer, as we see here. It's like a cancer that will spread and will destroy you and destroy others. Destroy the peace, the purity, and unity of Christ's church. As a result of that temporary visit that turned into a permanent residence in Jerusalem, these Grecian Jewish Christians were now in need of help and care. They didn't have established businesses. They didn't have what the Hebrew Jewish Christians had as residents in that area. And so they needed to be cared for, and their widows especially needed to be cared for. This is also something very important to the Lord God who takes up the cause in, this, in the Psalms of the orphan and the widow. And we are, in James 1.27, we are told, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep uh, himself unspotted from the world, to visit, to care for, uh, to provide for those who cannot provide for themselves or who find themselves in desperate straits. 
Satan, no doubt, here sought to use this murmuring to divide and conquer the church. But Jesus used it, as we see, he used it to bless the church by calling deacons to assist the apostles as caregivers to the needy. So out of this particular problem that Satan intended to destroy the church with, the murmuring, the Lord used that as he always does. He used even that to bring forth uh, and to formalize uh, the office of a deacon within the New Covenant Church, which we have even to this day, a permanent office to care for as angels of mercy to those in need, as caregivers taking care of those who are struggling and who are needy, uh, who are um, afflicted and tried in very severe ways. Our second main point, deacons are appointed to assist the apostles in caring for the flock. Look with me at Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles take action at this particular point, no doubt under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, take action. They call for the multitude of the disciples, and this may be a representative multitude of the disciples, not all of the multitude of the disciples. As we said, there are tens of thousands of, of believers now. Uh, you couldn't congregate uh, nor communicate uh, in Jerusalem uh, with that many people. So these were likely, again, representatives, perhaps their elders. You know, there were many house churches throughout Jerusalem. They were, they were um, meeting from house to house, breaking bread from house to house. They were hearing sermons from house to house. So there were many house churches in the regional church of Jerusalem with uh, many pastors, uh, with many uh, uh, elders. And now to be added to this are those who are called deacons, though that word isn't used in Acts 6. It is used elsewhere in the New Testament, as in Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. So this is the formalization in the New Covenant Church of the Office of Deacon, a most highly honored office within Christ's church. In the Old Testament, most of the physical, material needs that related to the church were under the care of the Levites, whether it be collecting and distributing money or the care of the tabernacle uh, or the, of the temple. 
In the Jewish synagogue, uh, we read uh, in various uh, histories that there were officers that served the needy and had oversight of the temporal aspects of worship. So they had officers, synagogue officers, that were called to handle these types of matters. Deacons are ordained officers in the church, just like pastors, teachers, and elders. Deacons are likewise ordained officers in the church that are distinct from pastors, teachers, and elders. The word deacon uh, means servant. comes from the Greek word diakonos, which is translated servant. Our form of Presbyterian church government, uh, which was completed in 1645, states the following concerning the office of deacon. The scripture doth hold out deacons as distinct officers in the church whose office is perpetual. That is, it's not temporary, like the office of apostle or prophet or the office of evangelist. These, these offices are uh, distinct, are temporary, extraordinary, but the office of a pastor, teacher, elder, and deacon, these are permanent uh, offices, perpetual offices of, within the church. To whose office it belongs not to preach the word or administer the sacraments, but to take special care in distributing to the necessities of the poor. You see, deacons are those who, who take the doctrine, who take the teaching of scripture, and they apply it to the lives of God's people by way of their service, by way of their loving service, by way of the practical needs of God's people, and even those out, even outside the church. That there is, again, that practical nature of the office in applying what the pastors and teachers proclaim in doctrine, they apply it by way of of their use of their gifts and abilities to the needs of the people. Deacons do have ecclesiastical authority from Christ to serve tables. It is an office. Every office of the church has ecclesiastical authority. It's not given to the office of deacon to govern the church. That's given to um, ministers, that is, pastors, teachers, and elders. But nevertheless, they do have the authority of Jesus Christ to serve, to care for, to minister to the needy on behalf of Jesus Christ. They're not simply going out and doing their own thing. Christ has commissioned them. Christ has called them. It is a very, very important office. Therefore, any office within the church is an important office. 
because Christ has established it and his authority undergirds that office. Though they are not pastors and teachers in preaching and in administering the sacraments, and though they are not elders in governing, they are nevertheless official representatives of Jesus Christ in ministering just as Jesus Christ did, just as Jesus did in his ministry. So deacons minister to the sick, to the needy, to the widows, and to the orphans, and to those in trouble, those who have uh, needs that they uh, cannot seem to dig themselves out of. Deacons, dear ones, are the eyes, the ears, the hands, and the feet for Jesus Christ in loving those who are in need. Notice in Acts 6, 2 through 4, which we read just a moment ago, that in the appointment of deacons, the apostles also teach the distinction between ministers and deacons. Apostles, as ministers, and all pastors and teachers after them, have a very specific calling by Christ, the ministry of the word and prayer. In verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So that's the very specific calling of ministers, that is, of pastors and teachers. Their specific calling is not to serve tables. Uh, But there are times, obviously, and Jesus has given us that example, that uh, we must be willing to serve tables. But that's not our specific calling. Our specific calling is ministering the word and in prayer. It's not as though for the minister serving tables is beneath his dignity. That's not uh, the uh, idea at all. Uh, Every minister must be willing to serve tables, to wash the feet of Christ's disciples, as it were, to care for them. Um, Many times the church does not have deacons. Well, it's the ministers uh, and elders at that point uh, who... Uh, are serving the tables and washing the feet, as it were. It's rather that Christ has delegated his authority to ministers to serve the word of God as a spiritual meal on behalf of Christ, whereas for the deacons, it is their calling to serve a physical meal, as it were, on behalf of Christ. In other words, the ministry of the church, pastors, teachers, elders, and deacons, the ministry of the church all together is a ministry to the whole person, body and soul, the whole person. Ministers and deacons both serve Christ and serve the church, but they have different callings by way of serving Christ and the church. Note here in verse 2 
that the same root word that's used to describe what deacons are called to do, namely serving tables, uh, there the word serve is the Greek word diakoneo. Uh, the, when we go down to verse 4, uh, a form of the same word in Acts 6-2, that was a verb, diakoneo. But in verse 4, the ministry of the word is that which is, is given to the apostles and to ministers. Ministry of the word is diakonia. Uh, one is simply a verbal form, the other is simply a, no, a noun form of the same word. So ministers, elders, and deacons are all called to serve God's people. It's not just the deacons that are called to serve God's people. All are called to serve God's people. Not to bully them, uh, not to push them around, not to lord it over them, not to exploit them, not to make money off of them, but rather to serve them, to care for them in both body and soul. The priority of the minister, therefore, is to study God's word in faithful preaching and teaching and to pray for the sheep and bearing their needs to the Father, much like the high priest had the breastplate with the 12 stones representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel upon his, his, in his breastplate here. They, they were to be near and dear to his heart, the high priest, as he offered and prayed for them. So the minister is to be given to prayer on behalf of God's people. That is, again, his priority, ministry of the word and prayer. The priority of the deacon, on the other hand, is to apply the word of God as Christ's caregiver, as Christ's angel of mercy in assisting the needy and the afflicted. Deacons really are such a blessing because they free up they free up the ministers and the elders to preach and teach and pray and govern. Deacons may not have authority to preach, teach, or administer the sacraments, but they do have, nevertheless, Christ's authority to serve the needy on behalf of Christ. So there's not to be any rivalry between Ministers and elders who govern with Christ's authority and deacons who serve with Christ's authority. There's not to be some jealousy or covetousness or rivalry, competition between these offices. They work together just as the priests and the Levites did in the Old Testament. The priests were primarily responsible for the offering the sacrifices, praying on behalf of the people. The Levites assisted the priests uh, by way of the material matters related to the temple and the tabernacle. The third main point, qualified men are called to serve as deacons. In verses 5 through 7, 
And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man of, full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Achaner, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. When they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Finally, the apostles did not make the selection of deacons here a popularity contest. Uh, there are qualifications. There are qualifications that are mentioned in these verses. <clears throat> a deacon called by Christ, first of all, must be a man, not a woman, but a man. Seven men were to be chosen. This is not, uh, men is not the more generic Greek word anthropos, but is the very specific biological male, aner, Greek word aner. So it's, they were to pick out seven men in verses 3 and 5, Acts 6, 3 and 5. Furthermore, 1 Timothy 3.12 says the husband of one wife. That's to one of the qualifications for a deacon. This is not because men are better than women at serving. Uh, that's not the issue at all, but rather because God calls men to be leaders in the family and leaders in the church. Men and women alike uh, are called by Christ to be servants by way of a general calling, but Deacons are authoritatively called by God with a special calling. There were women, you'll recall, who assisted uh, deacons in caring for the needs of others uh, in uh, the scriptures, just as women ministered to Jesus Christ in his ministry, followed him and ministered, cared for Christ. Uh, so we see in history, uh, outside of biblical history, we see in history women uh, may have been called deaconesses. That may be a term that's used at times, deaconesses, but that is only because they served and helped and assisted deacons, not because they were ordained to the office of deacon. So assistance to the deacons. There are many things that, that a deacon may do that a, a woman uh, may be better equipped to do, especially if deacons are working with a woman in need in some way, that it may be that there are qualified women, older women, who can help uh, in caring for women uh, in need uh, and who have need of help in various circumstances and situations. And so the, so the deacons, the, those who are actually ordained to the office, may employ and may uh, call for help from women. And again, in, in 
times past, that woman may have been called a deaconess, but it was not uh, an office that she was ordained to. At least not an office, if it did happen, not an office that she was supposed to have been ordained to. A deacon called by Jesus Christ is a man who is qualified and recognized to be so by the church. In verse 3, the apostles say to the brethren, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So, the apostles didn't just impose deacons upon the church. Uh, the church approved of and consented to the deacons that were ordained, as we see here. And so it should be even now. All church officers, should none of the church officers, should be imposed upon a congregation. Uh, it should be by the willing consent. The congregation does not ordain nor install. That's, those are acts of authority performed by the eldership. But the congregation does consent and does approve of those who are serving as pastors, teachers, elders, and deacons. They recognize their qualifications. And if there is a problem, then that is raised with the eldership. So that it might be dealt with. And so the deacon and the seven deacons here the apostles say, must be a man who is qualified and recognized to be so by the church as one who is, quote, of honest report, end of quote. That is, who has an honest reputation among those within and without the church. Now, someone who has a reputation of being dishonest, unfaithful, but has a reputation of being honest. The next qualification, a full of the Holy Ghost. That is one who is led by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Holy Spirit. Uh, not sinless, but faithful. Wherein a church officer sins, a faithful church officer repents, seeks God's forgiveness, repents if it's a sin committed against a member of the family, or someone within the church, or someone uh, on the job, or wherever in the neighborhood, repents, humbles himself, seeks forgiveness of those that have been offended, and does likewise with the Lord God. And so, full of the Holy Ghost, controlled, uh, led by the Holy Ghost. Full of wisdom, is the next qualification, full of wisdom. That is, one cannot be full of wisdom if one does not know the scriptures, because wisdom is the application of the scripture, is the application of the truth to specific situations. 
And so to be full of wisdom implies that there is a knowledge of the truth, a faithful knowledge of the truth, because there's nothing to apply by way of wisdom if one does not know the truth already. But to be full of wisdom is to be characterized by that heavenly wisdom that James mentions in James 3.17. But that wisdom which is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's the wisdom that, that uh, the scripture speaks of as heavenly wisdom that church officers should be seeking from the Lord and they should man be able to manifest that wisdom in applying the truth of God. Whether it be in the family, whether it be in the church, regardless of what circumstances might arise. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, lists uh, qualifications for deacons, uh, a fuller list of qualifications. And again, I'm not going to go through all of these qualifications, but uh, they again fall into the, these four categories, or three categories. Moral, doctrinal, and familial qualifications. And so deacons like pastors and teachers and, and elders uh, should be qualified in these three categories that are mentioned here. Qualifications for uh, a bishop, for an elder, in the first part of chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3, are very similar uh, to the qualifications uh, to and for a deacon in the latter part of First Corinthians or First Timothy three. These seven men in Acts six that were chosen to serve as deacons are listed by name in verse five. Uh, Stephen became the first Christian martyr of the New Covenant Church. Philip became an evangelist, a minister. According to Acts 21.8, this would uh, tend to indicate that though one may begin as a deacon, um, he may later show in evidence gifts of leading, preaching, teaching, and become uh, a, a minister uh, in Christ's church. These men that were appointed to be deacons in Acts 6 were set apart to their holy office by prayer and by the laying on of hands, signifying that Jesus Christ had set them each one apart to serve on his behalf. They had his authority to, to serve. They had his authority to be and hold that office of deacon. They were serving not on, their, on behalf of themselves, they were serving on behalf of Jesus Christ, just as is true with ministers and elders. Paul says of Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.14, who was a minister, that there was 
laid, the hands were laid upon him by the presbytery to set him apart and to ordain him to the ministry. So Satan intended to divide and conquer in the church of Jerusalem by dissension, but Jesus intended to bring unity and to prosper the gospel out of that dissension that arose. Notice in verse 7 that after having ordained these seven uh, deacons, notice what it says happened in the church. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. When the church is functioning and doing what Christ has called it to do, the Lord gives evidence here in this particular case of his blessing, his blessing upon the church by way of the word of God increasing, increasing by way of numbers, increasing by way of growth in the lives of God's people because as the deacons were able to free the apostles up and the ministers up and the elders up to do what God had called them to do, they were able to accomplish so much more by virtue of the help and assistance that they received from the deacons. Likewise, during the Reformation, uh, the great Reformation from the Church of Rome, the church uh, was indeed blessed. The church was prospered uh, in Geneva and other Reformed churches in Europe by the restoration of the office of deacon to its proper place in caring for the poor and in ministering to the sick in hospitals. Again, the, the deacons were, were in every way caring for the bodies of God's people, whether they were in the hospitals, whether during a plague, whether they were poor, whether they were widows, whether they were orphans, whether they had fallen upon hard times. Again, the deacons were serving in these ways. Dear ones, as we come to a close, we can tell, I believe, if we are growing more and more like Jesus by the way we are more and more willing to serve rather than to be served. Jesus, from all eternity, was the blessed and almighty Son of God, and yet he became an obedient servant, even to the point of dying, the shameful and horrible death on the cross for his beloved elect, that we may never forget, that we may never forget that we are never as near to being like Jesus than when we set aside our pompous and high-minded pride to wash the feet and to serve one another. That's what we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, that he who existed forever in glory came down and made of himself a servant, a servant to us, 
We are beneficiaries. We are the ones that he came to serve and to rescue by his service. And because he humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross, that shameful, that shameful death, the most vile criminals were put upon a cross and crucified, and he bore the wrath of God for us. We read in Philippians 2, God highly exalted him, so that at the, at the name of Christ, every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow. Dear ones, there will be far less opportunity for dissension, for rivalry, and jealousy when we are preoccupied with serving one another in love rather than comparing ourselves with one another in pride, being jealous at the, the gifts and the abilities of one another whether that be in the church or whether that be in the home. What we do in love to one another, understand, we do to Jesus. According to Jesus in Matthew 25, 40, at the judgment, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these my brethren, you did it unto me. Likewise, on the other hand, and what we neglect to do in love for one another, we neglect to do to Jesus in Matthew 25 45 the wicked say when do we not visit when do we not do these things inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these my brethren you did not do it unto me so Jesus has authoritatively given to his beloved bride and church the office of deacon a caretaker of the church, an angel of mercy to God's people, which reminds us that Jesus delights to wash the feet of sinners. He delights to bear up the needy. He delights to bear up the afflicted and the downtrodden and the downhearted Jesus, dear ones, is not only a teaching savior and a ruling king, Jesus is also a ministering servant to undeserving sinners. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Our glorious savior, how we praise thee that thou art such a servant, a servant that has purchased our salvation, a servant that has borne the wrath that we deserve, a servant that, that was pleased to do what he was called to do by thee, our Father, A servant who considered the will of God more important than what he was suffering. And so, Lord, we pray that thou would make of us all 
servants like Jesus Christ. And grant to us, our God, as well, uh, servants, deacons, uh, who, on behalf of Christ, will serve, who will, who will care for, who will lift up and bind up, Lord, the brokenhearted and the needy and the afflicted. That, Lord, this office of deacon would receive, again, in our midst, much, much honor and much thanksgiving. We ask, our Lord, that thou would hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.